Right. Um, so the uh, the last um, panel of this very um, interesting day, final panel. Um, I'm Barbara Taylor from the Pathologies of Solitude Project, and this um, this is going to run slightly differently because this is going to be a, a sort of a dialogue conversation um, between Sakafesh Saki and Gwen Adshead. And um, each of them is going to speak, Shakafe uh, is going to kick off, each of them is going to speak for about 10 minutes. And then they're going to, if they wish to, they will ask each other questions. Um, and so that will run on for a little time. And then, but then it will open up um, to everybody else to um, ask questions and, and so on. So um, I think um, you have the, um, um, abstracts that, that Chakave and um, Gwen have, have sent in, so I won't spend more of our time um, introducing them. I'll just uh, go straight over to them, so Chakave. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for being here and inviting me. So I'm Shokufa Sahi. I am an Iranian-Canadian. I came to Canada as a refugee in 1992. Two years after I was released from prison on a temporary uh, uh, release uh, in Iran. Uh, I was during the 1979 revolution. I was a first year high school student and uh, very much got swept into the revolution and political activities and just being during revolution. Uh, in two years after, 1979, in uh, 1960, 1982, I got arrested for uh, being a student activist, leftist student activist. At that time, I had a one-year-old son. Uh, and uh, in the prison, I got a five-year uh, sentence, but because I wouldn't uh, abide to the condition for release, which was uh, public denunciation and, and giving allegiance to the, uh, to the regime, to the state. I was kept in prison as on an inde um, indefinite time. Three years after, because of uh, lots of things happened and in Iran, Iran-Iraq war finished, and a lot of things happened. It's, in uh, 88, 1988, it was a massacre of the prisoners, and then there were remaining prisoners, which I was one of them, and they had to end up with this last uh, piece of the uh, our generation, which were in the prison. So in 1990, they gave me a temporary release. Again, I didn't accept it because I said I am free. I'm not going to go out on a temporary release. If you release me, I'm not going to come back. And uh, so I came out. And uh, then I was there. I had to go back in a week. And in a week, they said that, uh, I mean, I didn't go back, but they made my parents to return me. So it played a lot of psychological pressure, torture through family members. And um, so after two, three times of playing like this, I, could, I convinced my parents not to do it 
and let them to come and take me if they want to come and take me. They didn't, but I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't go to school, I couldn't work, I didn't have a release um, order. So after two years, uh, I decided to uh, escape, leave the country. I didn't have passport, I didn't have permission to leave the country, so I got myself and my son smuggled to Turkey and from Turkey to Canada. And here I am. Oh, in Canada, I went to high school. I went to the, uh, I learned, went to English school, ESL, uh, got my high school diploma, then went to the university. I spent most of my time after that in the university when got my BA, MA, PhD, and now I'm here <laughs> in political science. What I'd like to talk here today it's uh, under our, um, the title, Forced Solitude. In prison, I had uh, different, I experienced different uh, way of solitary confinement. There are so many different ways of having solitary confinement. And uh, it was uh, from uh, being blindfolded and kept on a folded, uh, blanket by the wall in a corridor, to be in a cell, to be in a chamber or corridor like a coffin, to share a solitary cell with a couple of other cellmates, to be in a single cell and share it with 30 more people, just stuffed, and, uh, or to be in a locked room with 100 people. Different time, different conditions. And uh, so it's a lot, if, as we talk. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of my thinking and growing happened in prison, actually. It was mostly, I think, in those coffins that I grew up. I became more of who I, I am today, I guess. So I can discuss it. Yes. Okay. Um, so I'm going to, to just spend a few minutes in a way like you setting the scene for how I come to be sitting here. So I'm a forensic psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. So I work. Um, in prisons and in secure psychiatric facilities with people who've committed offences. Um, and in secure psychiatric facilities, people are detained because it is assumed that their offences are connected somehow to a mental illness, that the mental illness that they suffer from has been a major functional factor in how that criminal rule-breaking, nearly always violence, comes about. So the two contexts are very, are very different. Um, a secure psychiatric facility, you don't go there unless you've actually committed an act of serious violence and somebody thinks that that's driven by mental illness. And by and large, it looks like it pretty much is. Um, although we, can, uh, we have had occasional moments um, where there's been questions about the political aspect of the violence, and we'll perhaps come back to that later. 
But for the most part, the people who go to places like Broadmoor and other places like that are, are people who've committed acts of serious violence, usually within the family, um, or sometimes random, bizarre act, acts of violence on strangers, and, uh, and where mental illness seems like a, a functional explanation. Um, and then, in, of course, in prisons, um, I'm again, I'm mainly working with people who are serving sentences, again, usually for violence, where, where psychological distress arising from the offences comes up. So people will come and have, well, they will seek therapy with me to talk about what they've done or try and understand what they've done, try and understand the origins of their, of their violence. And I sometimes see people also because they're very distressed about being in prison. Um, so that's part of the sort of dual sort of role. And in both these settings, I do see people who are um, in solitary confinement. But the contexts, again, are very different. So in the secure psychiatric facilities where I work, we the NHS hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, or psychiatric hospitals, pretty much. There's a few who don't, but most of them have an idea, a concept of seclusion as being something that might be a way of calming you down if you were distressed. Um, so that's the narrative in which you might find yourself secluded um, because it was thought that you are acutely mentally unwell, acutely disturbed and confused, and you need to be secluded for your own good and the good of the other people. Um, whereas in the prison, um, the seclusion, the, separation, the, the, the segregation, and you will be interested to know that in most prisons, now, in both English prisons, this is now called separation and care, mm -hmm. rather than segregation units, as it used to be called. Um, but in the prisons, people get se segregated for different reasons. Um, again, often it's because people are breaking the rules. So, for example, I'm thinking about somebody who, in the women's prison where I work, somebody who refused to take their medication and got segregated for a weekend. Um, so, um, and then there are people who are segregated because they just they're considered to be very high risk. So we have, we have men in what are called the close supervision units who spend you know, 23 hours a day locked up um, in, in the, what we would think of as the essence of solitary confinement, a bit um, such as being described um, in much greater detail and, um, uh, by our American colleagues, um, where you know, it's a whole other level of, of, of control, I think. Um, but I suppose what I was very struck by, and what I'm hoping that we're going to talk about, is the similarities and differences between these different kinds of segregation. Um, and it seems to me that there's something here about the contexts in which these take place. And I'm also, two other things really, I suppose, that we might come back to. One is the message that's being given by the system to the person who is being segregated or uh, excluded. What is the message that's being given to them? Um, and also what it means 
to the people who are involved in either doing the secluting um, or those who have a role in making it happen or bringing it to an end. Um, because, for example, um, I have had a role um, in, um, in, in the seclusion of psychiatric patients. So a patient in the hospital is secluded and the consultant psychiatrist has to come down and provide evidence that the person has been seen, is not being mistreated, is etc. Mm. etc. Et it's a kind of signing off on that, and that that those kinds. <coughs> of, and there are, there are lots of structures uh, around that, but of course that's all within a context of looking after somebody who's mentally ill. So the message that's being given is one something about this is for your own good, whereas um, it seems to me that you know that some of the for political prisoners like yourself, the message that's being given is something else again. And I wondered if that might be a place for us to, th to start to think about, about the different experiences, the differences and similarities, I guess, between different kinds of people in these kinds of solitary experience. Hmm. Uh. As we, we started to talk a little bit uh, before the session started, um, the context for me it's um, it's an issue, but it's not. Uh, but there is something more fundamental that I'd like to touch on, and that is that uh, outside of the context. What is what is this things this that it's been done to us as a human of uh, for diff in different contexts mm. of uh, separating, segregating, locking somewhere, and especially when it's you don't have a control over mm. it. It is not that I take, I seek solitude and go and sit in a corner mm. and I don't want to see anybody. But if somebody else mm. uh, it's dif dif determines that. And I like to actually, <laughs> I'm going to turn the question probably. I like to understand, to see that what people think that will happen to that person that mm. will be the lock that lock that person over there, either is for the just punishment for their own good or for whatever it is. How do we imagine how imagine that that kind of a solitude does something to that person? What is mm. being imagined? That's why I always mm. wondered what is being imagined. Mm. Well, I can only obviously I can only talk from the perspective of the psychiatric services and maybe that's um, best place to start because I guess I mean I mean in prison it seems to me that the the the, the, the message that's being given to the person who's being segregated so for example this 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 young woman young woman uh, middle-aged woman who refused to take her medication and she got put in separation and care she got segregated for a weekend um, and the message was very much, you are doing a naughty thing. <laughs> you are breaking the rules, you are not complying, and we are going to give you 
we're, we're going to punish you. Basically, we're just going, we're going to punish you um, by removing your liberty, just to remind you that we have the control, mm -hmm. and if you want to get out of here, you have to do as we say. And there is something, I think, very fundamental, um, which you already touched on, in a way, about the expectation of coercive, punitive environments to change your mind, to conform to theirs. Mm -hmm. That that is, um, that is what is intended or wanted. That, mm -hmm. that we will put you in such a situation that you will change your mind and conform with our mind. Mm -hmm. And if you refuse, we will act in various ways to punish you until you change your mind. We're going to just keep racking up the pressure until you do change your mind. And I think that something of that is there in ordinary criminal prisons where, where people are not being locked up because they're opposed to the political regime, but they're being locked up because they killed somebody, for example. So this, this woman who refused to take her medication, she killed somebody when she was a teenager. She already spent woo, 25 years in prison. Um, and it has been determined that her mental health is better when she's on medication. So, um, so for her not to take her medication, there's a small act of rebellion, mm -hmm. you know, which um, is going to interfere with her progress. <laughs> So she's not allowed to have a small act of rebellion because that's not what we want. So we want, the prison wants, the prison psychiatrists want her to be better, feel better, her mental health to be better so she can move on. But it's also a reminder that you don't get to choose. You don't have the autonomy of choice because we get to say when you go. Um, but in the mental health setting, I think your question is a very interesting one. Because I don't, I, th I think there is a, I think there are layers of of self defeat of self deceiving narratives here. You see, I, I think, I think there's a layer of narrative in which the mental health service wants to tell itself that this person needs to be on their own in order to calm down, mm -hmm. and that is the cover story, if you like, that justifies manhandling somebody into a bare room with only a mattress. You're going to stay there until you calm down, type of thing. Like, you know, like a sort of particularly, like a sort of dreadful grown-up time-out type of thing. You know, when you've, you know, when you've come to your senses, when you've settled down nicely, then you'll be able to come out again. You know, that, it's that kind of... So the vision, to answer your question, the vision is that somehow being alone with the mattress, but also a message conveyed to you that you've been naughty, Mm. And you, you must give up this naughtiness, mm -hmm. and and you must give up this this silly state of mind, this silly line of thought, and give it up. And when you've given it up, you can come out, and you can have all the benefits of being a joined-up person, you know, with the other people. But of course, the, the what's not being talked about is the is the nursing staff's fear. This is what what I think what happens most often is that the nursing staff are very frightened of this person who may be shouting and throwing things or whatever it happens to be. And, and they often are pretty scary, you know, um, particularly if they you know, make a weapon or something. Um, so, so the nursing staff are frightened, but I think what's not able to be talked about, much as I imagine was the same 
in your prison. What's not able to be talked about is how much it benefits the people who are putting people away. Do, do you see what I mean? That mm. The nursing staff feel safer because somebody's been, been secluded. Mm -hmm. In the same way, the regime feels safer. The regime feels a sense of satisfaction. Feels safer when this person is tidied away. Anybody who opposes them is going to be tidied away. And I think that the nursing staff feel frightened. And they, I also think they feel vengeful towards the patients, mm. um, because they've been frightened. Um, but you can't talk about that. Um, so it becomes very difficult to, although we try, we, we try very hard to do this, actually. Um, it becomes very hard, I think, for people to admit that they're really putting this person in seclusion <laughs> to punish them. Mm -hmm. So we come back full circle to these kinds of competing narratives are sort of what's on the surface and a sort of subtext which mm. can't be articulated. So the, the answer to your question is a complex one, because I th but I think there is an expectation that somehow if you're, you're given a message that you cannot think this way, so we're going to put you somewhere until you think differently. Mm. Okay, if I stop here, because you can punish somebody by flogging that person. Mm. Okay, you're naughty, I'm going to flog you. Mm. Okay, so you target the vulnerability of the body. Mm. Okay, its body is corporeal, mm. you just, yeah. you know, give us good spanking. Yeah. Yes. But when we put a person to solitary, mm. a different kind of a vulnerability is being mm. targeted. Yes. And that is, it's again telling that person you're vulnerable. Mm. And what kind of vulnerability are we targeting there? That mm. it's not, it's a, or even they don't look at it as a torture. Mm. So it's a, it's a one of the big thing is that, oh, is it torture or is just being separated for care, mm. uh, special housing, it's for your own good, mm. but it's not none of these things. It's a mm. torture. You're mm. vulnerable and this is that kind of a vulnerability mm. of human being that we're targeting. And that vulnerability is mm. that this disconnecting a person from everything outside, and when the door is locked mm. behind that mm. person, what do we imagine? I mean, you say, okay, stay there for 24 hours or 48 mm. hours or until you, 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 know, you uh, concede mm. and abide to the rule, but you leave that person there with what? Mm. With, with its own mind, imagination, mm. psyche, needs, fears, and nothing but just the body. Mm. And how would this is, is supposed to, how this deprivation is supposed to produce something positive? How is this deprivation of everything that is human is supposed to produce something positive, something healthy? Well, I, I, uh, I wonder whether, you see, this is the problem of sort of urtext, isn't it? You see, I wonder whether it isn't really intended to produce anything healthy. That's I think what it, I'm it, I think, I think it is. I think it is intended to convey um, a message about you are vulnerable, you don't get to choose. Yes. You don't get to choose. 
and uh, you, partic you particularly don't get to choose how to behave in this way, if, you know, that you don't get to be free to do what you like. Mm -hmm. And I think, and it's interesting in the context of the previous discussions, because you know, I was thinking when the conversation was going on, I was wondering whether one of the, the, the essence of loneliness is to feel excluded and rejected, um, that in solitude you have no concerns that you are not wanted or valued or concerned or, or loved, you know, that uh, there's a kind of contentment ar around that. But the essence of loneliness is something about feeling that other people are having a lovely time, but you yourself have somehow been excluded um, and are not wanted in this in the sort of community of life. And um, I wonder whether this is one of the messages that's being given, which mm -hmm. is nobody cares. Mm -hmm. when, I sh when we lock this door, mm. we get to control what happens to you, and actually nobody cares whether they see you for another 48 hours, another four years or not. You think they care, but they don't. And I think it's, I think it's, it, it's pushing on that vulnerability, perhaps exactly. that, that little, perhaps that anxiety that many, perhaps all of us have, um, but is made much worse in circumstances like this, mm -hmm. um, like yours, where the concern is that I could I just disappear and nobody would know, yes. and I would be completely in the control of these people. And I think it, it seems to me that in your context, in a way, the text is clearer because there's a clear line of animosity between you and your controllers. Whereas I think for the patients, the line of animosity mm. is not, not so clear. Yeah. Mm. And there's a type of ambiguity mm -hmm. about that, that everybody, everybody sort of moves around in a sort of liminal space. Um, you know, am I, am I, am I ill? Am I, am I being punished? Am I, do I need to be by myself? Do I, should I do what these people want me to do? You know, was it perhaps a bad thing to throw a chair across the room? No, these, I hate these fuckers and they hate me. You know, <laughs> oh, I can't make up my mind, it's all too difficult, I, I want to come out now. You know, it's, it's the, and maybe it doesn't matter, you know, I just, perhaps I'll just do what they are. Please, can I come out now? You know, I said, or no. When the doctor comes, mm. when the doctor comes, the doctor will come and they'll say if you can come out. Even though, you know, the, the nursing staff have put someone in seclusion because they threw a chair across the room. Mm. They have to stay there until daddy comes. Mm. You know, and in this context, mm. I am daddy, mm -hmm. you know, mm. and, um, and I get to decide. Mm. See what daddy says. If daddy thinks it's all right, then you'll be able to come out. You know, mm. that sort of, and again, a kind of, um, of course, a kind of punitive childishness, which I think is not the case in the case of political prisoners, where, where, you are, a, you are a, an enemy, uh, you're a peer enemy. Um, you're, there's a sense, and you're making me think too about some of the political prisoners who I've met who were very keen not to see their incarceration as a kind of trauma, mm -hmm. but rather the necessary, the necessary result of their political position. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, um, and that they were not interested in talking about it as a trauma or that they had oh, yeah. been traumatic stress. I mean, it had been extremely unpleasant, but hey, you know, it, I'm at war. I'm at war and war is, is unpleasant. Um, and, you know, and I got to win this round, 
in fact. Yeah. The fact that I'm out and talking to you, uh, I've had this, exactly this conversation with them, the fact that I'm out and talking to you means that I won, and they didn't. And um, I don't have PTSD, I don't need any psychiatric help. Um, it's just my wife that complains about my nightmares. So, um, <laughs> which, you know, which is, a, you know, and that's, and that, and, but that, you know, but that's fine. You know, that's, that, that, that all makes, that all makes sense, you know. But I think for the psychiatric patients, I think there is a sense of being in a kind of childish state, um, being forced into a kind of childishness. Um, can I just drop something there? I even think for the child when they, uh, the timeout mm. given to a child, that's itself, it's very, it's an easy way mm. to, you know, to deal with the problem mm. by putting the child over there with the problem mm. and say like, uh, force the child to just pretend that, okay, next time I'll follow the rules, mm. but it doesn't mm. change it. Or the school children and what they do in the, put the schools in the closets, for mm. example, in the darkness, and then put mm. the, uh, mm. the student. Mm. And that, these are bringing that solitary confinement in the US is happening, this, mm. this kind of yeah. practices. These mm. are really, if we take the solitary confinement mm. out of our way of dealing with, uh, with problems, mm. we're gonna find a solution that would solve the problem rather than pushing and uh, trying to create abiding, obedient, people mm. or mm. destroyed people mm. Mm. but it's just like a yeah. something you know, no no so. I think that's very in you see you, and you talk about destroyed people one of the things that I wanted to touch on at some point during this afternoon was the people um, I sometimes come across who've been in um, seclusion so long that they are no longer interested in coming out yes um, and um, and you talked earlier when we were just having a cup of tea about the the pain of the pain of the, the of, of 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 imprisonment and, and and isolation and and what happens to people where they somehow have accommodated to that kind of pain mm -hmm. and it becomes part of who they are mm -hmm. as such that they no longer wish to come out of their room um, and that in fact they there's a, they achieve a kind of sense of control over mm. their environment because now they get to choose not to come out. Mm. Um, and the, the game is then turned on its head where the mental health professionals want them to come out um, and um, they don't want to come out. Mm -hmm. um, and they also don't want this kind of social connection that we think is, is the point of vulnerability on which the controlling coercive system is pressing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, what happens if you just gave that up? If you, get, you gave up, you changed your mind and you just gave up the idea of being someone who's connected with other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the only, on of the many problems I think that there are with that, um, and at least one is I think that people remain at great risk of sudden psychological, huge psychological distress mm. um, and suicide. Mm. Um, we had a man in the hospital who, who had been in seclusion at some level voluntarily for years, who then just killed himself one day out of the blue. Mm. Um, 
um, in a way that was extremely distressing to everybody um, because it was, it was such a surprise. Nobody had any idea that he was in that kind of state of mind um, because he seemed, as though he seemed exactly as he'd always been for the previous 10 years, which is that he would sit alone in his room, not coming out. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to do what I probably shouldn't do and use Tara's privilege because I just wondered if I could bring in a kind of historical dimension to this which might, which is probably familiar to a number of people here but m might also be um, when the lunatic asylums were um, the first serious wave of reform um, of the lunatic asylums at the late 18th century was the introduction of something called moral therapy, which was, um, Foucault writes about this, but there's quite a literature on it, um, and whereby instead of shackling and beating and so on, um, the insane, um, you would um, uh, quite often seclude them um, and um, and you would leave them to um, to their better impulses. Mm. Um, this, there was a commitment um, behind this: the idea that people did that every human being, no matter how uh, psychologically degraded, um, debilitated, had within them better impulses. These were often understood in religious terms because the Quakers were, you know, big wheel behind this. And, um, and you could work with those. Um, and, um, and moral therapy um, was indeed, uh, in many respects, far, far more humane. And, but behind it was a notion of conversion. Mm. Um, of, I don't mean necessarily to a particular religious position, mm. but a, a conversion of self that would occur um, in, in, in this situation. And, um, and this became, uh, I mean, there's a whole story about what happened within the lunatic asylums about that and so on. Um, and the first great wave of county mm. state asylum building was on this principle and, and so on. But the, the prisons then took this idea, prison reformers in the late 18th century, and they made it the backbone mm. of um, prison reform. The introduction of solitary confinement, um, very deliberately, as um, based on moral therapy, and um, uh, and that was the justification for um, first in the United States and then in Britain for prison regimes based on on solitary confinement, and that um, and there was a whole huge rhetoric, and so when and I think that the notion of conversion is terribly important within this that there is some parts of the self that can somehow undergo this kind of revolution, um, understood either in religios or other kinds of psychological terms. But then, um, and then, of course, as soon as widespread solitary confinement was being used, a bad story began to come down that actually people were going crazy. Um, and um, so there was a reaction against that. Um, but however, I mean, we now find that um, it's being widely used in these incredibly punitive settings mm. such as Chocofe has been uh, mm. subjected to, mm. um, but also, I mean, across the whole of the American 
um, mass incarceration in the United States with solitary confinement, the increased use of it in, um, in um, British prisons. And when I was in a one-time lunatic asylum myself, um, I witnessed the follow-up to this, which was the seclusion cells that still existed within the um, hospital that I was in. They did, but they didn't, they, they, one significant change was that instead of everybody jumping uh, on the person and slamming the door behind them, what they would do is they would have great big needles full of heavy-duty drugs, and then all the nurses would jump on the person fill them full of you know, some incredibly strong psychotropic drug and then slam them into the cells but they didn't have to lock the doors because mm. the drugs did the work for them. Um, but the principle of seclusion mm. um, uh, remained uh, the mm. same. You know, okay, we're just going to leave you by yourself and then they would keep an mm. eye on that mm. person. So drugs became another way of isolating. Mm -hmm. someone mm -hmm. through, through mm -hmm. drugging. Mm -hmm. So, but, so I give, I'm, and I apologize because I, I know I, I've overridden Cher's privilege here, but I wanted to bring this in mm -hmm. because I think that this notion of a revolution of self, mm -hmm. so it's not just changing your mind mm -hmm. that is, and I know that this is something that Chocofay has written about um, in terms of the Iranian regime, mm -hmm. which, I mean, if one wanted to pretend that there was anything that, that was pseudo-benevolent about this regime, <laughs> it might be some notion that they were making a better person of you by some kind of a forced conversion of self or forced revolution of self. I'm not trying to pretend that there was anything remotely benevolent about it, but I'm not sure there was much that was remotely benevolent about the original no. suppositions behind this. So I just, I just chuck this in about what's the because I think Shockerface's question remains in the room. Mm. Yeah. What do they think they're doing? Mm. Mm. You know, and you can say, well, they just think they're kind of murdering people by degrees or whatever, mm. or you can think that there's an idea mm. behind this. And I just wondered if, if maybe Shockerface or, I mean, if you have more things you wanted to say about that. When, when I was in a solitary cell, just a regular solitary cell, as soon as I got there, it was one cell in a corridor, 10 more cells around, and 10 rows, 100 cells mm. there, and uh, had a little window up there, all this classic thing, barbed wire, and then another layer of the bars, and a little patch of the sky. And then there are the walls. Mm. And, and I'm standing there and walking around in this five feet, uh, five step, three steps diagonal, mm. just walking and walking and walking. And I'm looking around, and the, there are writings on the wall. Uh, read them. And, and I'm walking, and I'm thinking, what are they afraid of? Mm. And I think mm. I'm just 18 year old, mm. and and I think wow, so much, so much walls, so much concrete, and all of these guards out there and yelling and screaming and threatening. Mm. You know what is nobody? Mm. <laughs> it's just it's just a nobody, just just a student. Haven't 
what are they afraid of? Hmm. And that actually gave me a, an insight of maybe we are somebody. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe all of these people are in my other cells around us. Maybe we, are, we have something that they're afraid of. Because mm. it's not bombs or any kind of a violence, none of this, but just being people and have some imagination, mm. I guess, some mm. ideas, thinking. Mm. And that's why I think that we had, we were people with uh, having a character, identity, then mm -hmm. I called it all of these years, reading, studying, mm -hmm. theory and phenomenology and all of those things, we have subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And that's what they were after. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what in that, what the vulnerability, taking you, cutting you, putting you there, and it's just, and inculcating into you that mm -hmm nobody, you have no connection to anybody, mm. and you're forgotten. Mm. No visiting, nobody, only the guards. Mm. And, and if you stay in that space and believe it, mm. slowly fall into the stupor of really believing that this is it, mm. then it empties. Mm. empties that subjectivity or if you give mm. in to that mm. Mm. if you give in to that or if you wish that just try to not being there mm. and therefore start to react mm. so lots of people would go in and start to react the reaction was fear mm. and the fear uh, would make them force them to start yelling screaming banging on the mm. door and and uh, trying to get out mm. and there's no getting out so what would they do they would uh, invite the guards to come in and mm. get beaten up mm. and mm. that's again that's a that's a connection mm. because the mm. connection mm. so mm. It's that space that I felt that this is what they're after is not is after the mm. that personhood mm. and what's that personhood is this connection mm. to the rest of the world mm. to your comrades to your family mm. members to your mm. ideas to your sense of who you are mm. what you are mm. and that is trying to be mm. taken away or destroyed and emptied out. Mm. Mm. I don't know if I answered. No, you absolutely did. No, and and I think that that illuminates something too for me because I mean this this makes me think about, um, you know, I mean the the really important writer for me when I first started in psychiatry was Goffman, mm -hmm. and and um, about because I because I. I'm old enough to be still working like Barbara in, in, with the old institutions, so I trained in these big old institutions with you know, lots of people which were really quite mad in their own way. Um, and, um, and the high secure hospitals are little remnants of that, although a far cry from where they used to be, but they, are, they have that same total institution-like quality. They have you know, rituals, to, rituals to get in and rituals to get out and, and a kind of identity that gets imposed upon you because, you know, because you're here. 
And, and I think that issue about subjectivity and personhood is really interesting because, of course, within the secure psychiatric estate, um, there, this independent subjectivity cannot be allowed to stand mm-hmm. as a coherent or cogent worldview because it's mad. Yeah. It's already been deemed mm. to be mad. It's the, the, so we had a, a, you know, for example, we had a, a man, just thinking about a man who changed his name to Clark Kent mm. when he was a patient in the hospital. And we had another man who changed his name to Mr. Alpha Omega. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, got a worldview about himself and others around him and and so and that's on the one hand that's a worldview that's sort of very specific to him but on the other hand there are people telling him you know that worldview is not okay <laughs> it's not okay it's not okay because it's illegal and it's not okay because it's an actual intellectual challenge to our to our way of thinking to our way of thinking, thinking. Mm. it's it's we've decided that it represents a kind of pathology or brokenness. Mm. So you, if you, uh, and if you continue to hold on to that subjectivity and that personhood, that will be evidence that you are ill or broken. Mm. And so the people, I think, who find themselves you know, secluded for a long time, I think are sort of hanging on to a kind of subjectivity or personhood. I think that's right. Mm. And we have also wondered, uh, lots of people wonder how much violence, um, but from patients to staff, is an attempt to make a connection. Mm. Absolutely uh, an attempt to make a connection. Um, And albeit a, a very a very crude and damaging one, but mm-hmm. because because the only way you get to interact with people is if you assault them. Um, but but it's a game that it's hard to win, you know, mm. because um, rather like the state in Iran, the the psychiatric state gets to call the shots. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if you continue to assault people on a regular basis, you know, it's people won't give you a chance to do anything else. They're just You have to give that up. You have to give the hitting bit of you up. Mm. Um, it's not going to be okay to come out and be a hitting person. Mm. You have to give that up. And, um, and I think that that, that kind of, and, that, and that's happening exactly at the same time as we have these narratives that talk about empowerment and recovery and taking service users' narratives seriously and really listening to patients. But at the same time, if your narrative of yourself is, you know, you hate, you don't accept that you're mentally ill and you hate this and we're just going to keep hitting you and I'm going to keep hitting people who challenge me, then that we, we're in a kind of stalemate. There isn't any way to take that forward, and it's a kind of waiting game. Um, but it, it labours under this, under this overarching story of benevolence, that I think then puzzles and, mud, and maddens people, really, both the staff and the patients alike, because of its inherent ambiguity. Whereas in a way, there's a sort of kind of clear standoff, isn't it, between between you and your jailers and the, the people who represent mm-hmm. the state that says your view is not acceptable to us, it's a threat to us mm-hmm. and we're going to keep you here until you change your mind and you say, fuck you. 
mm. basically. Mm. Uh, probably nicer words than that, but um, <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> This is too much time in Broadmoor, Humphrey. Um, <laughs> does things to your language. Um, at, um, but but that it's in you know, a resistance is important. Mm-hmm. Whereas isn't it? You know, the the language of resistance, the identity of resistance. Whereas I think that the psychiatric patients and the and the guys who are in long-term confinement in prisons because of their violence. So we, there's about eight or nine men who are they're in long-term solitary confinement in high-security prisons because they're deemed to be very high risk. Mm. These are men who've killed in, in prison. They've gone into prison for, for murder. They've killed other people while they were in prison. That's those sort of guys. And, you know, and they have... You know, and I think, coming back to your very interesting question, they're kept in, in solitary confinement, apart from one hour a day when they come out on on six-man unlock, so that's three men on each side, and then they're allowed to come out. And, and, and their world is waiting for them to change their minds, a, a revolution of mind. And I think they do not know whether they can want to make that change of mind or whether they want to resist. Do you see what I mean? I don't think they know... And I don't know that there's anywhere where they can have that conversation about whether they want to resist or not. Mm. I can't say anything about that. I, can, mm. I know that I've read some about the American uh, mm. Mm. prisoners in solitude yeah. in maximum. Uh, kept them for long, long, long time, long mm-hmm. years, and it's not necessarily because of violence, mm-hmm. but because they're strong. I say that mm-hmm. many of them because they're strong characters, yeah. they're leaders, they yeah. are resistors, yeah. Yeah. and uh, because they're not, uh, they yeah. don't snitch. And yes. the whole thing yes. is that it's not that that you don't become violent and become a good person and become a good uh, this and that, but mm. if you become cooperating and mm. working for the prison yes. and being yes. the same person. Yeah. So it's not really about uh, saving them or saving mm. other prisoners mm. from them, but mm. it's again, it's, mm. it's about mm. destroying a, a subjectivity and putting something else in, 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 its, pa- in, mm. in its place. Mm. About these... Uh, it's it's the, the thing is when in your just by putting in the solitary and say that you dare till you're not you mm. Mm. it's 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 just i don't know i said what's the logic in you mm. you're there until you're not you